everyone and welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. I'm Kate. And I'm Molly. And today Kate is going to tell me about Michelle Obama's memoir, Becoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I do have to caveat this conversation that while I did make notes and prepare for this podcast, my notes got deleted. So we are going to just wing it and still have the conversation and still talk about this book. Um, But it may be a little bit less formal than it typically is. Yeah, which you know what, Kate, you are an extensive book reporter. So you get a pass once in a while when things don't work out. So Uh, It's just like, we're going to talk about it. We won't like pull specific quotes or anything, but if you are interested in the general topic, once you hear that podcast, then you can check it out and um, read the book yourself for once. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you can do some work. (laughs) Why don't you make a podcast about books? (laughs) We don't, because then you're competing. Yeah, never mind. That was a joke. Um, This is copyrighted material. Yeah. Um, Cool. Well, let's just uh, jump into a summary, which is going to be partially from Wikipedia. So don't sue me, whoever wrote this on (laughs) Wikipedia. Um, So Becoming is a memoir, as you mentioned, by former First Lady of the United States, Michelle Obama. Um, It was published on November 13th, 2018. And uh, it talks about her... Uh, experiences in childhood as a young adult, and then through her experience of meeting Barack Obama and becoming First Lady. So the final chapter, kind of the epilogue, is um, the inauguration of President Trump. And so that's kind of the span of the book. Uh, (laughs) That is so... I, I just You're remember, just shaking your head. Like, I, like all the blood drained out of my face. Uh, I just remember <laughs> after that inauguration, like Michelle Obama described just like sobbing, leaving the White House. And I can't yeah. even imagine. Yeah. It, uh, she has just an epilogue about like the inauguration and how strange the transition was mm-hmm. uh, versus the transition that she experienced with the Bushes when they, when President Obama became president. Uh, So I can talk about that a little bit more later. But uh, basically, she talks about her childhood and her uh, experiences growing up on the south side of Chicago in the first section of the book, which is about becoming me. The second section is after she met Barack Obama through his election as the president, and that's called Becoming Us. And then there's a section at the end, which is called Becoming More, and that is her experiences as First Lady and uh, up until 2018 afterwards. I really like that. That's such an interesting structure. Yeah. I think it's cute, too. Mm -hmm. I like the naming of it. Yeah. Uh, One other thing to note is this is, like, this book was incredibly widely read. It was incredibly widely published. Um, It sold, like... Uh, let's see. It was the highest selling book published in the United States in 2018, wow. uh, which set the record 15 days after its publication with Whoa. over 2 million copies sold. Wow. There was also, I remember like 
sort of a competition between Barack Obama's memoir and Michelle Obama's <laughs> memoir that had come out roughly at the same time. Wow, and I remember so like him commenting like, yeah, well, <laughs> she basically she was like, well, mine sold more copies. And he was like, yeah, well, mine is longer and more intellectual <laughs> or something. And they got into an argument about it. I remember watching. That's so funny. Um, I'm glad Michelle sold more. Yeah. And also, it's funny. I mean, at the time, I, I don't know if it's since caught up, but uh, I will say that this book is much more easy to read than Barack Obama's mm-hmm. book. He writes like a constitutional law professor because he was one. Yeah. Uh, and that is personally not my favorite <laughs> thing to read when it comes to memoir is like the incredibly dense, yeah. uh, detailed prose. Yeah, it's like, I think it's a real testament to why you need to market to women because uh, women really are consumers and they don't want to read like intellectual prose in a memoir. So also I think women read more. Yeah, I totally agree. So that's my uneducated (laughs) guess. Um, That's my anecdotal evidence. Totally. (laughs) Um, Men buy more books. Women read them more. Yeah. Um, and then Barack Obama in this like thing, this argument with about like whose book was going to sell more and who's going to be more successful because they're both extremely competitive individuals. So um, mentioned that Michelle used a ghostwriter at some point. Mm, but I was going to ask not you. Really credited mm. as such okay. in the book. Okay. So I think what happened was that she utilized her head speechwriter to help with the book significantly but it's not credited to that person um like she did not sit down and tell her whole story to one person who then wrote it so i think the majority of the book is michelle obama's writing okay but i think it must be heavily edited and perhaps influenced by others yeah i was gonna ask that i mean this isn't true across the board, but I do feel like once you get to a certain level like that of just like success and busyness, there's mm-hmm. there's kind of only so much you can do on your own. Yeah. And I don't know, as much as it like, it, I, it kind of bothers me that that's not credited better if like other people were really involved in the creation of it. It's mm-hmm. it's sort of expected on on me like I was going to ask you if there was a ghostwriter because I just assume when someone is that level although like the Obamas are people who are good writers I would say so in that sense it maybe makes more sense that they wanted to write their own books but usually people that are famous aren't like necessarily good writers so it's like there's often like a ghostwriter involved but yeah no that for sure that's kind of what I assumed as well I mean I don't know why the ghostwriter isn't just credited. It seems a little weird, but I don't know. Some, you know, like the FDA says it has to contain a certain amount of blah, blah, blah to be considered considered blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. It's like, this has to be X percentage ghostwritten for it to be yeah, credited, yeah. credited to that person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe if, if the person just like edited large sections, yeah. Yeah. it was like, well, they were helping me to edit, but they don't get right. their name as a writer. Right. Which I, I think, don't know. I think that is common. You know, it's like when someone publishes a book, all of them have been heavily edited by people and they don't like, it's not like name of author name of editor like that right right (laughs) so you only usually see the editor listed if it's a compilation of authors and then it's like basically curated by whoever which makes sense but 
Anyway, uh, so um, before we jump into the section of Becoming Me, I am curious how much you know about Michelle Obama's background. Is this something that's going to be like totally new to you? Because I personally, obviously, I know who Michelle Obama is. I was much more familiar with her uh, experiences and background when she became first lady, but I did not pay attention to like what her background was prior to that. I just knew that she grew up in Chicago. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Illinois, for some reason I think of when I think of the Obamas. So beyond that, no, like I could tell you some things about when she was a first lady, although at that time when the Obamas were like presidential presidential candidates when they were in the white house i wasn't as interested in politics so Mm -hmm. i don't even know as much about what she did as first lady as i feel i should but definitely more in that era than anything before then i mean we were also younger like i was i couldn't vote when obama was first elected i was in eighth grade so and i (laughs) you know i could the second time like the Mitt Romney Obama election. I remember that and I did vote for Obama, just so everybody knows. <laughs> Even though I was like deeply religious at the time and everyone else around me voted for Mitt Romney, I still was like, no, I don't think so. Pause for applause. Thank you. Um, I was like, we can't vote for a Mormon. No, I'm just <laughs> Mormons aren't even Christian. You go like the opposite way. It's like you're yeah. like more conservative. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, everybody, but I did vote for Obama. okay cool so yeah that's kind of how i was too i i didn't know a lot about her personal background and that's the part of the book that i found most interesting was her becoming me and becoming us chapters i was frankly a little bit less interested in becoming more so i'm gonna skew the conversation towards the first two-thirds of the book so she grew up in chicago on the south side of chicago um her parents frazier and marion robinson uh were huge influences in her life. Uh, she talks about her father, who had MS and was an incredibly hard worker. Uh, and she also grew up with a brother named Craig. Um, her brother actually ended up going to Princeton on a athletic scholarship, I believe, um, which I think opened some like doors and ideas. Uh, of like being able to go to an Ivy League school for her as well. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of stories in the beginning of the book that I think really represent her character traits and things that seem to be very innate to who she is. And one of them is that she was in kindergarten and they had this like flashcard game where they were um, shown a word and they were supposed to read it and say what it was. And it was the colors. So the colors had, you know, written on flashcards and um, the whole class was supposed to go through it and they were supposed to see how many they could get in a row before messing up and she um, wrote about this situation when they were doing the flashcards one day and she messed up on one of the words and the next day she came back after having studied that word and demanded that she get a second chance at being able to do the flashcards because she knew that she could get it uh which I think just like highlights a couple of things the first is just like how competitive she is um and the second of like how ambitious she was even from an extremely young age and I think a lot of times people think of the 
person who is elected president as being the most ambitious one. Uh, but it's notable here that she, as the first lady, was also incredibly ambitious. Um, and I think a lot of times first ladies do not get their due when it comes to perceiving them in that way. Yeah. It's really interesting, too. She later talks about being a part of a charter school when she was in elementary and, and later into high school. Uh, and she talked about how much her neighborhood changed from the time that she was born in, I think, 64, 65, um, through her high school education and how her neighborhood demographics were changing and a lot of white flight was going on during that time. Um, and how when she was going to this charter school, which took her, you know, several hours every day to commute to, that she felt like she was a representative of her neighborhood and how that pressure really was always kind of a part of her. Like she always had this attitude of like, I'll show you, like you, you think that I can't do something, I'm going to do it anyway. And one of the things that she sort of talks about struggling with is that she had this attitude of like, I'm going to prove you wrong mentality. But then she also talks about how she never really stopped to question whether or not it was something she wanted to do. So a lot of what she was doing was something that she felt driven to do to prove someone else wrong, but she didn't know if that was actually what she wanted. And I felt that to be like really relatable and understandable. I feel like I definitely had a lot of that mentality when I was like growing up and then also into early college days kind of thing. And I'm curious if you relate to that like conception of like, you have to be so ambitious to go and get something, but then it takes you a long time to question whether or not you actually want that thing. Yeah, I feel like it's reminding me of something we talked about. I think when we discussed the book you did, Wanting, like women writing about mm -hmm. desire. I can't remember exactly what it was we were talking about, but I think in some ways I do relate to this and in other ways I don't. Like the, the way I don't relate is that I've never really thought of myself as a, comp a competitive person. Mm -hmm. And I, I would think of myself as ambitious, but just not in that very obvious traditional way like when someone tells me I can't do something my sometimes my first reaction is not like well I'll show you like I, I don't know like I just don't feel as like driven by those types of challenges mm -hmm. um but I definitely have had that I think the thing I do a lot is I get really invested in the idea of something and before I know what the reality of it is like. And so I think that I want something and I can be really driven to like go after it. But sometimes once I get there, I'm like, oh, I should have spent some time like actually <laughs> thinking about what this thing really was instead of what I thought it was mm -hmm. and or what I like imagined it to be. Um, I felt that way in grad school a lot. Like I really had this idea of being like an academic and just... I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I imagined that I would be like a professor. And when I got there and I was like, oh, this is what that is. I hate it. It's, it's like, well, you could have like figured that out before, but okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I think like in, in some parts of what you're explaining, like that's just being a young person experiencing life for the first time of having to reconcile what you think something is with what it actually is and then coming to terms with the fact that 
what you thought it was may not be even true, like may not even exist. Um, or in the like more generous or better parts of it, like it exists, but it's just not quite exactly what you wanted or there are other bad stuff that come with yeah. it or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I think this conversation of her being very self-reflective about this innate or characteristic trait that she has to really be ambitious and then um thinking through like but to what end yeah was a really big theme throughout the entire book um and she doesn't really change her actions based on that self-reflectiveness until she is clear into her adulthood Mm -hmm. let me give a few additional contextual things about her adulthood so um she does uh end up having a counselor who tells her that they're not sure she could get into princeton and that was like a i'll show you moment she eventually does get into princeton um and then she studies at princeton and eventually goes to uh harvard law school after that um she earns her law degree there and then she um gets a job in chicago at a law firm and moves back to chicago so she didn't meet barack until she was in chicago or where did they meet at school so she was working at this law firm and she was asked to be a mentor to summer interns and one of these summer interns was barack obama which is how she met him shut up and uh she talks about their romance in kind of a very like charming and funny way which was that when she first met him she kind of thought he was like a a little bit of like a slacker because he was (laughs) such a charmer that like he wasn't on time and you know she's she's a very like type a personality of like you know you're gonna show respect by doing all the things and following all the rules and barack obama was very much not a rule follower and so what she writes about is uh, this like experience of meeting him and being really like unsure about whether or not he was gonna like make it because yeah <laughs> she was like he's being a slacker by showing up late things like that. Um, but she and him quickly developed like a very good friendship. She talks about basically not considering him as a dating candidate because she was busy. She was uh, putting her life together. She was being a highly successful lawyer in downtown Chicago. She was uh, working a lot, and she really didn't feel like she had a time or need for romance and a romantic partner. That's so, it's so funny, like, when people describe their lives like that, where they're like, I was just so busy, I didn't feel like I needed it. It's like, I literally can't relate to that. What is it like? I know, I know. You... (laughs) What is that I, like? I could, I could never imagine you ever saying that. I, I think this is very relatable to me personally because I think there have been many times in my life when I have not been focused on anything but working. Uh, and so that for sure always took pre- precedent. And I think if my husband and I had not met when we were not working individuals, I probably would have also dismissed the possibility of dating someone when I met him. So (laughs) this is very relatable for me personally. Yeah, that's so funny. It's just like, I don't think that there's anything wrong with either one. Like, I think both get villainized for many reasons, but it's just like, it's It's just just a different different take on like romance. I, I think that it's funny how things have worked out for me because I probably 
would have just been fine either way if I had met someone or not. So, so crazy to me. <laughs> I know you're like that's that's illegal. Don't say that to me. It's so funny. It's just like I mean, obviously I was fine, and I really had gotten to a point in my life where I was like. I was doing things I loved. I was working in a way that satisfied me. Like I had like a high degree of fulfillment, but that was never enough for me to be like, yeah, I don't really need a partner. Like I've always yeah, or been Or I, like, I don't want that. Yeah. yeah. It, that's never been the case for me. And I don't think that was some like failing on my part, nor do I think that like being focused no, on work is like. personality. Yeah. Right? But it's just like so funny. I literally cannot relate to it. <laughs> It's, it's like how some people have always known they wanted to be a parent. Yes. And some people are like, meh. Like, maybe, but maybe not. And either way, it's fine. Yeah. You know, so I feel like it's kind of like that, where it's just like a personality trait and like a preference of like what, you know, whether, whether yeah. or not that's something that you've always wanted or whether or not it's something that you can kind of take or leave it. Yeah. And it's not, I think it's so nice that now we live in a time where women can entertain other ways of being instead of like well I can't have a credit card unless I'm married so I might as well you know like (laughs) yeah yeah that women deserve all the options yeah anyway okay so (laughs) I love this she was like look I'm writing up legal briefs get out of here yeah basically um so they they became friends uh she thought it would she was a little hesitant as she started to have feelings for him because she felt like he like it was going to be uh looked down upon and unprofessional if they dated because he was still a summer intern at that point and um but eventually like she gave in and finally kissed him and the rest is history kind of thing (laughs) so they started dating but Barack Obama still had one more year to finish out his law degree. Okay. So he went back to Boston so that he could finish out his law degree at Harvard. And she stayed in Chicago. So they were long distance for a little bit. And during that time, a few things happened where it really changed her perspective on her work and on what she wanted out of life. And one of her friends passed away from cancer at the age of 26 oh my god and she had she went through this really significant shift in perspective about like what mattered and what didn't matter to her and reevaluating the things that were most important to her and she realized that she didn't want to be a lawyer actually and she felt like she had been following this path and following this path because it was what she was quote unquote supposed to do and it was something that was giving her like external validation because when people when she said I'm a lawyer people were very impressed and they thought that was awesome and she finally gets to this point where she just has to deconstruct all of that yeah. and say like you know what actually I don't I don't think I actually like this I don't think I have a passion for being a lawyer I want to do something else and I think it's also very relatable to have something big happen in your life that really makes you reevaluate things for a lot of people recently the pandemic I think was a huge factor in similar ways yeah yeah and it also I was just thinking as you were saying that that I I bet that um part of her personality that is like oh you don't think I can do this watch me was like a big part of her becoming a lawyer because that's something that like even very you know privileged people 
are told that they can't become lawyers because it's too hard, especially at Harvard or whatever. That's like the peak. So it makes a lot of sense that she went for that because it's so highly regarded and so fought for. And then to have something shake your life and make you be like, oh, actually, this isn't what I really want. It's yeah. It's so troubling because then you're like, well, now what am I going to do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it's a very common experience for a lot of people when you get to the age of like 26, 27, 28, where you have been working for a little bit, but you are maybe unhappy with where you ended up and you start to question, should I change careers entirely? Should I go back to school? Should I just change jobs and companies? Um, What will it take to get there? And then having to consider all of the external factors that come along with it. So she, as she was taking a look at what it would take to change careers, knew that she would have to take a pay cut because she was making a lot of money as a corporate lawyer. And most other careers that she was considering would not allow for her to be making that much yeah yeah that's like it's that's an interesting thing like I've thought about that too like if I pivoted in some way in my life now like that is very likely to happen to me and it Mm -hmm. is like a it's creates a lot of hesitation you you Mm -hmm. I think we like to think of ourselves as like oh no like the money doesn't matter that much to me but it like absolutely does and I love money and I want more of it I don't want less (laughs) of it I want more of it okay I think money starts to matter less when you're making enough to not worry about it. But the vast majority of people are not making enough money to not even think about it. Yeah. So like, yes, it wouldn't make a difference if you're talking about $500,000 a year or $600,000 a year. But that's (laughs) not what we're talking about. It's not what we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. So things like that make a big difference, I think. And it's good for everyone to consider, like we were talking about, like the full ramifications of your choice, right? Like you don't want to make a choice to make a career change and then all of a sudden realize like, oh shit, I can't afford any of the things that brought a lot of meaning to my life. Yeah. Or just that like made it so that I didn't have to feel stressed every month Mm -hmm. trying to make ends meet. So yeah, I mean, I've made like decisions at some point in my career after grad school, I started to make moves towards careers that would allow me to have money over what I thought might be fulfillment. And it turns out Mm -hmm. like I wasn't fulfilled in the jobs that didn't pay me anything. And I may maybe not fulfilled so much now, but I make a lot more. And that is a pretty good trade. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So she starts to consider at this point, the prospect of, changing careers mm-hmm. um we are now entering the becoming us okay. okay part of the section because she's now met barack obama right um and so one of the funny things that she talks about is that barack obama's ideas of relationships and of marriage were quite different than her own okay her parents were married for a very long time until her father passed away which happens um not that long after she had lost her best friend. Oh, I think, God. Like, uh, maybe within the same kind of span. I don't exactly know the years. Mm. And uh, one of the things that then that spurs is that, like, reevaluation of, like, ma- what matters. Um, and so 
so so he has a very different idea of what marriage should or shouldn't be. Um, his parents had a very kind of whirlwind relationship uh, and were never really like committed to each other in that way. His mom was never really committed to any of her partners in like a long term way. Okay. Whereas Michelle Obama views marriage as this like enduring partnership and something that you rely on and you always prioritize the other person. Mm -hmm. And so she writes very authentically and very vulnerably about the first part of their marriage and how this impacted the first, you know, 10 to 15 years of them being together. Um, She talks about going to couples therapy together after a while. Um, so Obama then uh, takes on this like interest in having a political career after mm-hmm. um, moving from corporate lawyer to like being more interested in like nonprofit lawyers, mm-hmm. and then he moves into the political realm. Um, and so as he starts to move into the political realm, then um, she has changed jobs as well. Mm -hmm. And she starts working uh, for the mayor's office, actually, in Chicago. Uh, And then, so Obama runs for uh, state senate, Mm -hmm. um, and he becomes a state senator in Illinois, uh, which might be why you associate him with Illinois, because he was a state senator here. And so he starts his political career there, and what that means for them is that even though they're still living in Chicago at that time, he would have to drive Mm. to Springfield for Monday through Thursday of every week. Okay. Wow. So he was basically not around for like half of all of her time and do they have kids at that point they have their kids they actually she talks a little bit and writes a little bit about her experiences uh with uh, infertility issues and um having uh this be the first time in her life where she is experiencing this like thing that she can't just will to happen which is something that both her and obama are used to Brock were very used to is just like using their strong will to make something happen and this was just not one of those things um and so she writes a lot about the growth that came from that and the frustrations and the sadness as yeah. well yeah they had just had Malia. Okay, so now Barack is going to Springfield Monday through Thursday, and mm-hmm. he's not around, and they have a baby, and Michelle is like, what the fuck? Yeah, so she's, uh, at this point, still working full-time. She has a small child, and a part-time husband. Yeah. And great. they... <laughs> we love that. <laughs> and then, um, a few years later, uh, they have their second child, And she writes in this period about how much strength and stability and support she took from the women around her, Mm. which I thought was really beautiful. And she writes about how important it was for her to have other mother friends that were going through similar things, or maybe their lives look completely different, but it was just the prospect of knowing that motherhood doesn't have to look any certain way. Yeah. And that she was able to really get support from other people that were going through the exact same thing that she was mm-hmm. of like raising small children, which in and of itself is a very difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. So she's like drawing a lot of strength from these female relationships around her. That that makes me think of the like, 
I don't know where this quote came from or even what the quote actually is, but the concept is that you should invest in female friendships as much like, okay, so if you're a woman who's interested in a male partner, you should spend an equal amount or more time investing in your female relationships because they are just as important to providing you like a sense of community and fulfillment Mm -hmm. and they the like the male partner can't be the end all be all Mm -hmm. and I just tried to take that to heart a lot in my still but like especially when I was dating actively trying to meet somebody I tried to remember like this isn't the only important thing all the other female relationships you have are part of what's going to give you that feeling of fulfillment and connection that you are longing for so don't Mm -hmm. sleep on them yeah Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit in our friendship episode, too, of just how important it is to have people that you can rely on and who can support you and who you can support outside of a traditional monogamous relationship. And for some people, that's like family members, others, you know, friends, um, mixture of both. But I have definitely found that to be true in my own life that like, you know, it's important to continue putting effort into these other relationships yeah because you there's also a certain experience of just being a woman in the world that Mm -hmm. it's helpful to have people who get that yeah and understand what that's like yeah and it doesn't really sound like this is what was happening for michelle and barack but i think if you don't invest in other relationships outside of your like main monogamous partner you can end up putting too much strain on that relationship and have too many expectations of how they would fulfill you and how they would meet your needs. And that's like ultimately disappointing for you because it's not possible. And it can be really frustrating for that person that you're like putting that expectation on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think it's also the case that (laughs) in this particular situation, that would have immediately failed because he was literally not there um, for them to be able to do that kind of a like dependence on each other. So I read this particular section of the book and I thought, oh my gosh, I would absolutely require couples therapy because I don't know how people could have this work for them (laughs) where one person you're you're co-parenting but not really because one person is gone for the majority of the week you have two small children you're both working full-time and they were both on boards of organizations uh doing these kinds of like extracurricular stuff um one thing to point out is that her mother was instrumental in making this work in that she provided a lot of babysitting hours and help with kids. However, there's still two small kids and she writes about this section where they started going to couples therapy and they started to unpack like the issues that they were seeing, the differences in how they saw relationships and how they could work on their better communication styles. And one of the things that she talked about that came from those therapy sessions was less of her harping on uh, Barack to quit politics, which is what she had been asking of him. Oh, yeah, yeah. And more of her prioritizing the things that she needed to do to not feel resentment 
over the fact Mm. that he was gone for that amount of time. So an example that she gives is that she would feel really resentful when he had time to work out, but she didn't. Or that he was coming home late for dinners and she was waiting up and waiting up for him. And then he was late getting back from Springfield and there was a lot of traffic and he didn't get back until, you know, 11. And then she went to bed angry and resentful over that. And so one of the things that she writes that I really loved was that she started to figure out a way to make what she needed work, regardless of him. And that included having her mom come over and babysit the kids early in the morning so that she could get a workout in so she could feel better. And uh, it also included this new routine where for dinner, she would have exactly the set time of like, here's when we have dinner, here's when we read a bedtime story, here's when we go to bed. And if Barack Obama missed it because he was traveling back from Springfield or he otherwise got distracted, then he missed it. And the kids were in bed and that was that. And she writes that what that helped her do, in addition to not feeling resentful of the fact that he was able to fit certain things into his lifestyle that she couldn't, was that it also showed her daughters that life doesn't begin when the man walks into the house, that we're going to continue having our life on our time, and it's up to him to catch up to us. And I loved that she wrote it like that. And I thought that was really interesting as someone who's who knows that they're raising daughters and knows that there's going to be all of these societal pressures and expectations put on them and like kind of a small way of combating that as a mother of yeah. daughters. Yeah, totally. That's, I, I mean, I'm just trying to like imagine myself in that scenario and I definitely think that would improve things but I wonder if it would have still been hard for me to just feel like they were prioritizing something else above their family which you know ultimately sometimes that does happen and that doesn't mean that the person is not a good partner or father and all of that and it's just like you go through these different phases but it I think that would have taken a lot of effort and therapy and stuff to like work through and find a way to if that person isn't willing to sacrifice the career of politics to figure out a way to not view that as like a them putting something else above me situation so yeah I that seems so challenging the other thing I always think about with memoirs especially of like this kind of level where you're talking about someone who lived in the public eye for so long and someone who is writing vulnerably about the things they experienced in the relationship that haven't been like made public before. I'm always so curious about the rounds of editing, but like conversations that you must've had with your family to be like, is this acceptable to reveal? Like what level are we willing to go to? And when they are revealing these intimate details, I always wonder like, God, imagine the things that they didn't. Like, imagine the things that did not get revealed because you know there's stuff that they were like, that is too far, that is a personal thing, that is not leaving this family. And it's not that we have any right to know it. I'm just, like, very curious. Like, what are the things that they were like, absolutely not, that is staying inside the family? Yeah, I mean, I would imagine that she probably, I mean, I don't know, but 
She probably considered leaving him at some yeah, point. Yeah, totally. She probably considered whether or not they were equipped to have a second child given their scheduling. Oh you God. know, yeah. like there's probably yeah. a lot of questions around the decisions they could or couldn't make given where they yeah. were at that like yeah. isn't explicitly said but i'm just thinking like i would have had those questions i would totally. you know i totally. would have had yeah. those concerns for sure yeah absolutely and just the kinds of like little not little but like fights and letdowns and disappointments that maybe in hindsight you know aren't the end of the world but at the time felt like catastrophic Mm -hmm. and stuff that like yeah I mean anyone who's ever been in a relationship understands that that (laughs) it's like really intense sometimes yeah I mean especially when the small things are indicative of something so big yeah and when it's indicative of something that is I'm not sure I'm your priority in your life like that's a huge you know trigger and upsetting thing to be wondering and also they just like little things become symbolic Mm -hmm. like I was in this relationship for a long time and that person would always leave their clothes on the side like their side of the bed and it was that kind of thing that we all do where we have clothes that are not dirty yet but they've been worn once so we don't want to put them away but we don't know what to do with them and I just was always asking them, would you please, like, come up with a system so that they're not just, like, laying all over the floor? Because I'm a very much, like, I need my space to be clean. And they never did. And we were in a relationship for so many years. And eventually that pile of clothes became this thing that represented, like, the fact that they just did not care how I felt or what I needed. And it seems like that's not a big deal. It's just a pile of clothes. And it was like, no, actually, like, that was the represented so much of what was not working for us because it it was such a simple thing and that is the that that's the point yeah yeah I think too like we live in the small moments and whenever there are big things going on that feel too scary or too hard to talk about the small things are always accessible to us to represent the big things and so we can say, oh, well, you never wash the dishes. And really what we might be saying is like, you don't care if I spend more time doing chores than you do because you don't respect yeah. my time, right? Like maybe it's yeah. a large conversation about something yeah. like that. But what yeah. you're picking a fight about is the small visible thing because right. you're just so angry you can't hold it in anymore kind of yeah. mentality or whatever. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, all of that matters so much in, especially when you're living with a partner, I think, because again, you're with them most of your time. And so that is something that comes up a lot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like those little things when they happen over and over again, they become much bigger things because they have all of these like roots of history Mm -hmm. and like connection points of pain or disappointment or like maybe even trauma that they trigger every time it happens Mm -hmm. and so it you know that's so hard when someone's like this is not that big of a deal why are you making such a big deal about it it's like actually it's like hitting these like points throughout like years of history we have together so it's a huge deal yeah yeah and also like maybe it wouldn't be a big deal if you had listened to me the first time I complained about (laughs) yeah something you know because I also think the um (laughs) The lack of care and the lack of Mm -hmm. consideration that comes with ignoring someone's asks from you, especially if it's a need, uh, is really damaging. 
Yeah, totally. It's super damaging. And I'm curious, like, I would imagine that the Obamas eventually came to a place where Michelle didn't feel like she was constantly sacrificing her life for uh, Barack's career. But does she talk about that and like how she made peace with it or like how they found balance? Okay, so that's a very good question. And when Barack Obama, he was a state senator and then he ran Mm -hmm. for the U.S. Senate. And when he ran for the U.S. Senate, Michelle made a deal with him that was basically Mm -hmm. like, all right, you can run for the U.S. Senate. But if you lose, you need to give up politics and you need to find a different job. Because I'm like, yeah, sick of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then, of course, he wins. And um, <laughs> there's this, like, whole experience of, like, having him now be someone who works in Washington while she still is continuing her life in Chicago. And there's uh, a, like, constant tension, obviously, It's, there. like, just getting worse yeah, for her. Yeah, it's getting, like, worse oh, and worse. No. <laughs> um, but then uh, she hears a speech that he gives, and this was right before he announced his candidacy for president. Okay. And she kind of has like a shift in her perspective because basically mm-hmm. what she realizes is how much other people believe in him. Mm-hmm. And she starts to feel like, wow, maybe like the work that he's doing here is more important than just our family because yeah, what he's doing is, like... is serving so many other families. Yeah. And the selflessness that you would have to have in order to be able to think that way, I think is extremely commendable because that's very difficult to put your own kids below this Mm -hmm. national well-being. Yeah. Um, So eventually. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, what a moment to find yourself in to realize, like, that you like have the privilege and opportunity to be part of something so much bigger than you. And also the like daunting kind of bittersweet feeling of knowing what, knowing what you will have to sacrifice in order to have that. It's making me feel emotional. Like I just can't imagine being in that position and being like, wow, like I have this person in my life who is like on the precipice of accomplishing something that people cannot even fathom or dream of and who am I to stand in the way of that, even though I can see how important what we will lose is, or like what we might lose because of that is. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, and so when he finally does like run for president, she describes the campaigning and how incredibly intense and oh incredibly God. draining that experience was. Uh, she yeah. writes about her evolution as someone who was, you know, just herself to now being the Mm. uh, wife of a candidate. And um, And the like vicious, vicious news cycles. Yeah, the attacks that she had to endure. Um, And also she talks about like how she made small adjustments too to just be more likable. Like she was more aware of her facial expressions when she's giving a speech. Mm-hmm. Like little things that like we don't think about because we're not constantly yeah. thinking about how we're being perceived, but she yeah. had to be. Yeah. Um, and so when Barack Obama is finally elected president and they do move to Washington, mm-hmm. she actually describes this as being one of the periods of time that was easiest for their family. Um <laughs> oh in my terms God. of the, in terms of the scheduling because yeah. He worked in the same place that they live. 
So he yeah. could just come upstairs, have dinner with them, and then go back downstairs and work if he had to. Yeah. Which yeah. is just Plus, like, in, it's just so wild to me that yeah. being the president of the United States was the least busy job. <laughs> well, it's, so not, it's not the least busy job, but busy. That he, it was, it just was like, it was the job that was most conducive to fatherhood. That, that is, is so wild. Beyond. I mean, I guess now, obviously the expectations and responsibilities go up exponentially, but so does the support. Like now all of a sudden they have the entire staff of the United States government administration at their disposal. So it's like you do end up having a lot more resources to work with, but also the like schedule and expectations are, I cannot imagine trying to accommodate a life like that but wow that's so crazy that she was like actually things got a lot better after he was <laughs> i know that's <laughs> so crazy um so yeah so she talks a little bit about her transition during the inauguration and how the bushes were so kind and so supportive and so willing to prepare them and give them any advice that they could uh, and then obviously he's elected in a second term and she talks about how things were a little bit different because they were more prepared this time around. They were smarter about how they were. We're not going to do things. Um, as first lady, she took on the initiative of, um, I, I don't know exactly how the initiative was phrased, but basically it was um, providing healthier school lunches and getting kids to move more um it was kind of billed as like an anti-childhood obesity uh, initiative which is not my favorite but um that's yeah there were some pros and cons yeah yeah so that was her uh what was it called let's move or something like that i think so yeah i think that's what but it was i know what you're talking about that's yeah. like one of the main things i remember from her time as first lady mm -hmm. which again like pros and cons with that yep yeah, she started a garden at the White House, which is, like, pretty That's cool. So and then cute. they started using the vegetables in their um, food, which is cool. Um, cool. But, you know, it also, I think, uh, you know, yeah, did not necessarily <laughs> take into consideration the full range of what no, could be No, yeah, but that's okay. You know what? Live and learn. Yeah. Um, okay, so she, there, that's some of their time in the White House. And is there more to discuss there, or did you want to talk about the transition to the next administration? Yeah, so that's basically, I mean, she writes a lot about individual experiences she had as First Lady, how it was meaningful to her to get the chance to speak with and get to know people from all walks of life all over the world and all over America. Um, that was interesting, but I don't have any like specific things to pull out and to highlight. Uh, the epilogue then talks about the last day of the Obama's experience in the White House, which was also Donald Trump's inauguration ceremony. And she kind of reflects on how jarring this transition was because there was no even interpersonal kindness to it. Whereas, you know, before, obviously, there was a big, um, there was big political differences between candidates before but not so much so that it obscured the interpersonal kindness that they showed one another um and she talked about how this felt very different and that she will never forgive donald trump for putting her family in incredible danger by um 
adding fuel to the fire of the birther movement that claimed that Barack Obama was not born in America um, and was very xenophobic and racist, um, as well as a number of other just straight-up racist remarks towards her whole family, which I think is extremely understandable, and I also would never forgive him for that. No, and I also won't forgive him for other things, so... (laughs) Don't even have anything to do with that. (laughs) Totally fair, girl. Yeah, yeah. 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 Nor should should she. You know, forgiveness, I think, has its time and place, and I'm not sure that that is one of them, so... I don't think that granting forgiveness to someone who has never asked for it mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense Good. to spend your energy on. Good point. So. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. What is such a sad place to leave your, not life's work, but like such a huge part of your life's work, like in the hands yeah. of this actual monster who didn't give a shit about any of it and really just wanted to watch it like burn to the ground mostly. Yeah. For shits and giggles. Yeah. And gold toilets. Yep. Just because he could. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, that is basically what mm. I have for I loved it. the book. Yeah. That sounds so good. Man, what a beautiful legacy to to leave for people to understand a family that was, was and continues to be so beloved. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you're interested in reading her other work, she also has another memoir out right now that I think came out maybe in 2022. It's called The Light We Carry. Um, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I have not read that one, uh, but I have heard that it was received well. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So that is basically all I have. And um, thank you, Michelle, for writing a memoir that was not as dense as your husband's. <laughs> Yeah, and like any anytime someone writes a memoir, I think it is so it's such a gift to like let people know you mm-hmm. even though like the process of writing something like that is so draining and it, it can create like bring up feelings for you and for mm-hmm. your loved ones and all this stuff it can be really hard. So it it's a gift though. Yeah. And it's like an honor to to witness and read something like that. So, yeah, yeah, especially something as self-reflective and authentic as hers was. I yeah. read this, or I picked this book up thinking like, Meh, I don't know if I'm going to like this. Like, I may not finish yeah. this. Because yeah. I was thinking that it would be a little bit more holding you at arm's length, you know? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. she's already shared so much of herself with the world, and yeah. most of that was not a choice. Yeah. Uh, and yet... I think it was, yeah, incredibly authentic and vulnerable mm-hmm. and meaningful to yeah. present her side of the story, both, like, her and her family's faults and their triumphs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Well, thanks for sharing it with us. Yeah. And um, I we don't know for sure what we're going to do next time, but we're excited to surprise you and ourselves with it then. <laughs> Always surprises. <laughs> cool. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I love ending it on cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs>